what is God doing? Why does God allow evil in this world? If God is all-powerful and if he is all-loving, why in the world do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to relatively good people? Why do evil empires rise and bring severe suffering to innocent people? Uh, Was God sovereign? Was he in control when the Nazis forced the Jews into concentration camps? Where was the Lord when Pearl Harbor was bombed? Why was a 32-year-old officer earlier this week tragically shot and killed by a felon who should have been in prison? Why does the Lord allow hate and murder, sexual wickedness and rape, disease and dying and death? Why is there human trafficking in this world? Why the murder of millions of unborn babies? Why are children born with birth defects? Why cancer? Why abuse? Why does God allow our aging parents to suffer strokes, heart attacks, and dementia? Will the Lord save my loved ones? And what about the church? Why no revival? Why doesn't the Lord bring an awakening into our country. We need it. Does the Lord listen to me? Does he hear my cries? Does he listen to my prayers? If you have ever asked any of these questions, and I assume you have, if not, you will, then you're not alone. In our passage today, we will meet a prophet who also struggled with with God's sovereignty over the affairs of men. Habakkuk had questions that he wanted answers to. God invites us to ask our questions. And sometimes it seems that the Lord is silent. And sometimes we receive answers that, that we simply do not want to hear. We're being tested Our idols, the idols of our heart are being exposed. Our faith is being purified. Uh, We must accept and trust the plans of the Lord, even when life makes no sense at all to us. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible to the book of Habakkuk. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Habakkuk, as we prepare our hearts to receive the word of the Lord through Habakkuk, I want us to consider the bigger picture. Habakkuk, the bigger picture. The golden age of the United Kingdom of David and Solomon was a thing of the past. The kingdom had divided into the northern and the southern kingdoms. The the northern kingdom of Israel, which had consisted of 10 tribes, had been conquered by the Assyrian Empire. The southern kingdom of Judah, uh, made up of two tribes, uh, remained intact at the time of Habakkuk. However, there was sin in the camp. God's people had grown to reject the ways of God, and this would prove troubling to Habakkuk. Meanwhile, the fierce Babylonian empire is on the rise as Habakkuk writes. The book of Habakkuk itself is made up of three chapters. In chapter one, Habakkuk questions God. Chapter two, he listens to God. And in chapter three, he prays to God, questioning, listening, Praying. Another way of understanding the book is to see in chapter 1 that Habakkuk complains to God. Chapter 2, he contemplates God's word to him. And in chapter 3, he consecrates himself to God. Complaint, contemplation, consecration. 
Or yet another perspective is to see in chapter 1 the struggle of faith. In chapter 2, the cultivation of faith. And in chapter 3, the application of faith. Struggle, cultivation, application. And still, one final angle from which we might look at Habakkuk. In chapter 1, we see the wrestling of the prophet. Chapter 2, we see the revelation of God's truth to the prophet. In chapter 3, we see the reward of faith. Wrestling, revelation from God, reward. Perhaps the most important point made in Habakkuk is found in chapter 2, verse 4, where the Lord declares, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. This verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. It is a critical verse, and Habakkuk himself ends up being an example of what living by faith should look like. Brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, come what may, the only thing that matters is a faith rooted in God and overflowing into obedience no matter the circumstances. Such a faith requires that we lay hold of God as he reveals himself to us, not as we would want him to be. As we work our way through Habakkuk, our aim will be to behold God as he truly is. And like Habakkuk, we want to arrive at a place where come what may, we will continue to rejoice in and worship the one and only true and triune God as revealed through his holy word. My goal is to preach through the entire book over the course of three sermons. Today, we will zoom in on chapter one. Please keep your finger on the text. Keep your eyes focused on the word as we work our way through this chapter. I am entitling my message, The Complaints of a Faithful Prophet. The Complaints of a Faithful Prophet. We will explore three questions that help us to examine the complaints of Habakkuk. Uh, why does the prophet complain? How does the Lord respond to the prophet's complaints? And how does the prophet respond to the Lord's answer? Each question will be followed with three answers. You'll see that in your outline. And so let us begin with question number one. Why does the prophet complain? The prophet complains because he thinks God isn't listening to his prayers. He is thinking that God is not listening. Verse 1 begins, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. The word oracle carries the idea of a heavy weight or burden. Immediately, we know that Habakkuk is carrying a heavy burden. He feels weighed down, and the burden that Habakkuk carries, it's multifaceted. His burden includes the spiritual condition of Judah, as well as the future that awaits the people of God. His burden is visible, the text says, the prophet saw. Habakkuk was shown in a vision of God's people being attacked and conquered by a fierce enemy. The prophet thinks that God is not paying attention. He, he's not listening. He has closed his ears to the voice of Habakkuk. He says it this way, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and thou wilt not hear? The prophet has been praying for a long time. We don't know exactly uh, how long, but we can assume that from uh, Habakkuk's perspective, he has been praying for uh, quite a long time. He's been praying for help. He is faithfully bringing his burden to the Lord. He is seeking the Lord and he is praying, but he thinks he is being ignored. Can you relate to Habakkuk? Do you know what it feels like to carry a heavy burden? And have you brought your heavy burden to the Lord only to feel like you are being ignored? 
Habakkuk was concerned for the spiritual well-being of God's people. What about you? Are you concerned for the spiritual well-being of, of someone you love? Are you bringing your burden to the Lord? And despite doing, doing so for years, do you feel like you're just not being heard? Does it seem from your perspective that the Lord is just not listening? In our passage, we observe the prophet complaining because he thinks the Lord is not listening to his cries for help. This brings us to the second reason Habakkuk complains. He complains because he thinks God will not save his people. There is something in his mind. Part of his thinking is that God is just simply not going to save his people. He declares in 2b, I cry out to thee violence, yet thou dost not save. The prophet lives in a day of violence. And such violence comes not from outside the kingdom, but from within the kingdom. The southern kingdom of Judah is guilty. This is not to say that, that everyone within the kingdom is violent or overtly evil and wicked and sinful. Habakkuk himself was not a violent man, but he was surrounded by ungodly people. And he's feeling the weight of this, the burden of it. And so he's responding to God in prayer. He prays for salvation. He pleads for deliverance. Uh, Habakkuk is not only concerned about his own uh, deliverance. He is concerned about the salvation of God's chosen people. He prays for the salvation that he fears God is unwilling to give. And so this serves as a second reason he complains. We now turn to a third reason Habakkuk complains. The prophet complains because he thinks God will allow evil to go unchecked. God's not going to do anything about it. He's just going to let it slide. Verse 3 reads, Why dost thou make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contentions arise. His soul is tormented by the evil that surrounds him. He cannot walk through the aisle without seeing sinful magazines around and in front of him. He cannot escape seeing iniquity and, and looking upon wickedness. It's just all around him. There are few places he can turn where he won't be surrounded by evil. Habakkuk continues in verse 4, Therefore, the law is ignored, and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. God's holy law remains on the bookshelf gathering dust. There is no sound sense of right and wrong. Wicked people surround, outnumber, and they overtake the righteous. Their way of thinking prevails. Justice is perverted. Right is viewed as wrong, and wrong is viewed as right. Does this sound familiar? The spiritual state of Judah grieves Habakkuk's soul, and he wonders why God does nothing about it. And so we observe the complaints of Habakkuk. The prophet complains because he thinks the Lord is not listening to his prayers, uh, because he thinks the Lord is, is choosing not to save his people, because he thinks God is going to allow this evil to go unchecked. At this stage, we are left with a serious question. Habakkuk has unloaded his burden in the form of a complaint. His complaint brings the very character of God into question. We understand it is never a good idea to complain against one in authority. That is not something we typically do. At least those of us who have any sense and who are wise. I don't go to the coach and, and light him up for his failure to, to not put me in the game. I don't question the general when he gives commands to follow. 
I don't complain to the boss when he chooses to promote another employee instead of me. We know that, that there are chains of command to be respected, to be submitted to, to be honored, like, like we know this. But here we see the prophet bringing his complaint to the Lord. He is questioning the Lord. He does not like what is happening, and he is letting his Lord know all about it. And we are left at the edge of our seat wanting to know what happens next. And this brings us to the second question that demands some answers. How does the Lord respond to the prophet's complaints? How does Yahweh respond? How does Almighty God respond after hearing this complaint from this prophet, from Habakkuk? The Lord assures the prophet he is listening. He is listening. We see this as we come to verse 5 and listen to what the Lord says. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe if you were told. The Lord wants Habakkuk to, to open his eyes and to see that God is listening and that he is in fact at work. He is not sleeping. He is not slumbering. And by the words, it is clear what the Lord is doing. It's magnificent. He says, be astonished and wonder. I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. In other words, God has a plan in place. He is in, at work. And what he is doing is unbelievable. It is incomprehensible. It is incredible. Brothers and sisters, even when it seems from our limited perspective that the Lord is not listening, we can be assured that he is listening. He listens. He hears. He, he cares. The Lord loves his people and he bends his ear to their cries. He may not answer how, or, or when we want, but he does listen and he does act. And this brings us to a second response from the Lord to Habakkuk's complaint. The Lord assures the prophet he is working. The Lord has already made it clear he is working, but, but he goes on to provide some detail. But not the detail that Habakkuk wanted to hear. Sometimes... The Lord exercises a plan that is not in, in our playbook. We think we know what the Lord should do. We know what play to run. But the Lord has different ideas. We are called to trust the Lord with his plan. This is what the Lord later implies in chapter 2, verse 4, when he declares the righteous will live by his faith. And Habakkuk is going to be tested with the opportunity to live by faith. Well, let us open the door to see how the Lord plans to work. Verse 6, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. God declares he is raising up uh, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. Uh, they were a people to fear. They were known to impale their enemies with poles. Uh, they act quickly and without thought or care for those they conquer. And as the text indicates, they seize the homes of others. They take what does not belong to them. They displace people from their homes. They leave crowds of people homeless. Uh, the very reference to the Chaldeans would have invoked dread in the heart of Habakkuk. They are an evil people. Habakkuk perhaps would have likened them to the Ninevites of Assyria that Jonah hated to see saved of years gone by. 
we might equate the Babylonians to, to Hitler and the Nazis of World War II. Perhaps a more recent comparison might be ISIS. A future reference would be the mystery Babylon we read about in Revelation. A dreaded people who seek to annihilate those refusing to receive the mark of the beast. Well, verse 7 declares they, the Babylonians, are dreaded and feared. No one wanted any part of the Babylonians. And the Lord goes on to say in 7b, their justice and authority originate within themselves. They were a godless people who determined for themselves what justice meant. They viewed themselves as the source of authority. They, they were their own God. They exalted themselves above the one and only true God. If you were to approach them with biblical truth, they would promptly reject everything you had to say. They would laugh at you. They would mock at you. They would, they would persecute you. They were a hardened people, dead in their transgressions and sin. From a human perspective, they were easy to hate, and they deserved judgment. Well, verse 8 continues, Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. All of them, every last one of them, they come to inflict harm. They are violent people. Uh, their horde of faces moves forward and they collect captives like sand. They move swiftly to overtake and devour their enemy. Uh, there is no hope for escape. They are a violent people who scoop up their enemy like sand. Verse 10, they mock at kings. And rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. The Lord makes it clear that the Chaldeans, these Babylonians, they fear no one. They are not afraid of the kings and rulers of the earth. No matter how strong and fortified the fortress may be, the Chaldeans are able to sweep through and utterly destroy with ease. From the human perspective, there is no stopping the Chaldeans, these Babylonians. The dreaded Babylonians will sweep through and, and lay waste to the southern kingdom of Judah. That is what is going to happen. And this is far from what Habakkuk had in mind. Yet our text tells us that that God in his absolute sovereignty is raising up these wicked people to accomplish his purposes. And part of God's plan involves bringing divine discipline upon his people. God is raising up an extremely wicked people to discipline a less wicked people. God's answer to Habakkuk's prayer comes in the form of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And thus God assures Habakkuk that he is working, but that is not all that the Lord assures the prophet of. The third thing for us to consider is that the Lord assures the prophet he will judge. He will judge. We see this in verse 11b, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. The Lord assures Habakkuk, the, the Chaldeans will not get away with wickedness indefinitely. All sin must be judged. And this is no different with the Chaldeans. God will hold them accountable. And what a comfort to know that our God is a just God. He will judge and he will judge fairly. As he raises up the Chaldeans to discipline his people, so he will address the sins of the Chaldeans themselves as well. But before we get too excited about God's judgment upon the Chaldeans, let us not forget, let us never forget 
that he is merciful and he is kind. Let us not lose sight of the fact our Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He is a loving God. He is willing to forgive the vilest of sinners. And I submit to you that part of God's plan includes extending mercy to many within the Babylonian empire. That is part of his plan. He has his eyes on people who will be saved from within the Babylonian empire. And so he has a plan in place, a plan that is to be trusted. Well, having said this, our text does say they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. You see, when we view our own strength as our own God, we are guilty. We must view God as the source of our strength. It is in him that we trust. It is in him alone that we put our hope. We do not hope in the arm of flesh. We have no strength, but we have one who is strong and mighty, and we trust in the strong and mighty God of the universe. That is the one. The text again says they will be held guilty, those whose strength is their God. And so the Lord makes it clear to Habakkuk. He's listening. He is working, and he will judge the problem is that the Lord is working in a way that not even Habakkuk could have imagined. The Lord's plan to Habakkuk seems like a dreaded plan. That's not how I wrote it up, Lord. That's not what I had in my playbook. That's not how I scripted it out, Lord. That's not my plan. So we are left wondering, what will the prophet do? How will he resolve this dilemma? And this brings us to the third question in our sermon outline. Uh, How does the prophet respond to the Lord's answer? There's much to be learned from how Habakkuk responds to the answer he receives from the Lord. And so let us learn from our friend Habakkuk. The prophet steps back. He steps way back, giant step back, and he gains perspective Whenever we feel weighed down by the burdens of life, we do well to step back to gain perspective. Uh, We need not just bring our burdens to the Lord, but we need to bring ourselves to the Lord. And we need to set our gaze upon Him. We need to look full into the wonderful face of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We need to set our gaze upon Him. We need to seek Him and set our minds on things above We must take in the antidote of truth to endure the trial. We must lay hold of our God whenever the tsunami of suffering seeks to bring us down. We do well to take our eyes off the trial and turn our attention to the truth of who God is. And this is exactly what Habakkuk does. This is instructive. And let us listen to his words beginning in verse 12. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord, Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? We will not die, thou, O Lord, thou hast appointed them to judge, and thou, O Rock, hast established them to correct. Thine eyes are too pure to approve evil, and thou canst not look on wickedness with favor." This is his understanding of who his God is. After the Lord speaks, these are the first words from the mouth of Habakkuk. He immediately expresses an exalted view of God. There is nothing, there is nothing healthier than an exalted view of the transcendent triune God of the universe. In Habakkuk's response, we deduce at least 11 truths about the Lord. You may come up with more, but I'm going to give to you 11. Habakkuk refers to the Lord as thou, thou. This speaks of the otherness of God. He sees, uh, Habakkuk sees a clear distinction between himself and God. He looks outside of himself in his address to the Lord. He knows there is a God and that he is not that God. And this is a good place for us to start. He sees his God as everlasting. God has no beginning, no end. 
you could go all the way back to when time began and discover that the Lord was present then and before then, everlasting. He sees his God as, as Lord, literally. He is Yahweh. He is Jehovah. Uh, and Yahweh means to be. It carries the idea of existing one. He affirms the reality of God's existence. He simply is. He is the great I am. He exists. Habakkuk sees his God as my God, my Holy One. Pay attention to the personal pronoun my. He is not just the God. He is my God. And he is my God because I embrace him as my God. And this speaks of the personal nature of God. You get the sense that God wants his people to claim him as their own. And this is exactly what the prophet does with a burdened heart filled with questions, concerns, and confusion. Habakkuk still in faith approaches almighty God as mine You are my God. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that you can approach Almighty God and you can declare to Him, you are my God. Habakkuk sees God as holy. And this means that God is set apart. There is none like Him. He is unique and He stands alone. He is the exalted one and he stands alone above all other so-called gods. He also sees his God as one. The surrounding cultures embraced polytheism, the belief in many gods. But Habakkuk here declares there is only one God. Imagine the comfort and confidence Habakkuk begins to feel as he meditates on the fact that there is one God with whom he has a relationship. He sees his God as faithful to his promises. And this is why he is able to say, we will not die. We will not die. Habakkuk knows that the Lord has a plan for his people. He is confident that God's promises to his people will be fulfilled. He anticipates a seed. He anticipates a land. He anticipates a king. He anticipates a people. He anticipates a nation. He sees a future day. And based upon the promises of God, Habakkuk knows we will not die. We cannot die. If you are God and if you are who you say you are, you are faithful and you will follow through with your promises. And I can take this one God to the bank. I know we are not going to die. You will not decimate us. You will not bring us to an end. And so Habakkuk holds firm to the faithfulness of the Lord. He is faithful. Habakkuk sees his God as sovereign. Again, he declares, thou, O Lord, hast appointed them to judge. And thou, O rock, hast established them to correct. The Lord has sovereignly raised up the Babylonians to accomplish his purposes in the world. He is in control of all that takes place on the world scene. The Assyrians went down by him. The Babylonians go up by him. The Medo-Persians will come, uh, you know, in, in the future by him. He's in control of all that happens. We need not fret. We need not worry. We can trust in him who reigns from on high. And we may feel tempted to ask why. The problem is that our minds are too finite to understand all of what the Lord is doing. Uh, We are never commanded to know why, but we are commanded to trust, to trust in the Lord. We are to walk by faith and not by sight. And again, in 2.4, God declares that the just shall live by faith. And we are to trust in the Lord even as he sovereignly chooses to raise up evil empires to accomplish his purposes on the world scene. Habakkuk sees his God as a rock, a rock. 
This reference indicates strength, reliability, security, protection, safety. God is the one to whom Habakkuk turns, and we too, when life leaves us asking why, should turn to the Lord as our source of strength, reliability, security, protection, and safety. Habakkuk sees his God as judge and corrector. God will use human instruments to exercise his judgment and correction. He is raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to judge and correct his own people. The terms judge and correct are to be seen as as parallel terms. They complement rather than contradict each other. There's overlap between the two. God's judgment here carries the idea of, of justice and law. God will establish justice and law among his people. God's correction involves establishing what is just or right. And the overall idea is that of a chastening that is redemptive rather than destructive. Habakkuk here describes discipline from the hand of a loving God designed to accomplish good in and through the lives of his own people. The New Testament parallel is Hebrews 12, 6, where the writer tells us, those whom the Lord loves... He disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And Habakkuk sees the Lord as pure. He knows that God is unstained by sin. Not one ounce of evil. No wickedness. No sinful motive or desire. God is perfect. He is pure, spotless, and pristine. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And Habakkuk knows that the Lord alone is pure. And so Habakkuk takes a step back, and he puts his burden in proper perspective. He holds his God, he he beholds his God, he sees his God, and he rehearses truths about God. He reminds himself of of who God is. He beholds the transcendent, almighty, everlasting, self-existing, personal, holy, one and only, faithful, sovereign, strong, reliable, secure, protective, correcting, pure, and pristine God of the universe. And Habakkuk derives a measure of strength. But this does not mean that Habakkuk is at peace with God's answer to his question. Not yet, anyway. Despite what Habakkuk knows about God and despite whatever strength he has gained from beholding his God, he remains troubled. The problem of evil has not gone away. He remains troubled. He's confused. And, And this brings us to the second way Habakkuk responds to the Lord's answer to his initial question. The prophet reveals his confusion. He reveals his confusion. And we see this beginning in verse 13b. Why dost thou look with favor on those who deal treacherously? The prophet fails to understand why God favors such an evil people, and he continues. Why art thou silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Habakkuk is in no way declaring the righteousness of his own people. He has already expressed his concern about the spiritual state of Judah. But Habakkuk is acknowledging that Judah, by comparison, is more righteous than the Babylonians. And he cannot wrap his mind around why God would show favor to the Babylonians over his own chosen people. That is a head-scratcher. And this is now at the center of his struggle. Why? Why? He continues in verse 14, Why hast thou made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things, without a ruler over them? Those under Babylonian attack are helpless, defenseless, and they have no direction, they have no guidance. 
They are like creeping things without a ruler. Uh, There is no way that they can protect themselves from the ruthless onslaught of the Babylonians. We read in verse 15, the Chaldeans, these Babylonians, bring all of them up with a hook. They drag them away with their net and gather them together in their fishing net. The poor helpless victims uh, have fallen prey to the ruthless Babylonians. A modern day parallel might be how in World War II, the, the Jews fell prey to Hitler's Nazi Germany. Habakkuk is being told that, that Judah will fall prey to the Babylonians. Imagine, just, just imagine in your mind's eye, just, just walk with me a, few, a minute here and just imagine if you were a prophet and, and the Lord were to tell you that your beloved country will fall prey to a country that is way more godless and wicked than your own. Imagine a fierce terrorist country rising in power and ruthlessly taking over other countries. Imagine the images of beheadings and burnings posted throughout social media. Imagine CNN and Fox News aligned with each other in their reports of how terrible the world scene appears to be. Imagine knowing that your own country is next on the radar, that your country, having been weakened by internally through moral decay, is now primed for enemy attack. Imagine all of this and then being told that God will answer your prayers in part by raising up a fierce terrorist nation to invade and conquer and utterly destroy your country. If you can imagine these things, then you have a sense of Habakkuk's burden. Well, let us continue in our passage, verse 15b. Therefore they, the Babylonians, rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and they burn incense to their fishing net because through these things their catch is large and their food plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? Babylonians are on the rise. They are victorious over those they conquer. They are experiencing great joy, abundance of food. The wicked are prospering. Habakkuk is not pleased with the picture being painted. He's perplexed. Habakkuk would never think to answer his own prayer this way. He is perplexed. Will they continually slay nations without sparing? We know that the answer is no, but it seems like that is not what the answer is going to be. Habakkuk is having a hard time seeing it. He he has reason to trust, but he is struggling with his faith. He is questioning, will the onslaught of the Babylonians never end? Though Habakkuk has heard from the Lord, he he feels he needs more to go by. I love the fact that he chooses not to withdraw from the Lord. Rather, he comes to the Lord with his question and he presses into the Lord. He is not going to give up on the Lord. And this brings us to his third response to the Lord's answer. The prophet waits and listens. And we see this, I'm jumping ahead to chapter 2, verse 1. We'll pick up here in the next message, but let us read the passage because I think it helps us for the purposes of the message here. Habakkuk 2.1, he says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply When I am reproved. He does not shrink back from the Lord. He leans into the Lord. He remains watchful. He commits himself to listening. And and he does so with a humble heart. He He is fully expecting to be reproved. He fears perhaps he may have crossed the line. And he is open to the Lord's reproof in his life. In working our way through the chapter, we have considered the prophet's question. 
the Lord's answer and the prophet's response. Why, O Lord, do you not listen to me? Why do you choose not to save? I am listening. I am working. I am just. I am raising up the Babylonians. I know who you are. I still don't understand. Your solution to the problem doesn't make sense to me. I will wait. And I will listen. We have observed the complaints of a faithful prophet. At the very heart of his complaint is the question, why? Why? What Habakkuk did not know at the time was that God would allow the Babylonians to rise and conquer, not just for the good of his people, but for the good for good through his people. In the book of Daniel, we read about how the Babylonians, in fact, did conquer Judah. And we learn about the faith of men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men trusted God when the deck was stacked against them. We learn that God would go on to save the king. Nebuchadnezzar would come to faith in Yahweh, and many Babylonians would believe. Not only that, but synagogues would be established during the Babylonian reign and would later become instrumental in the rapid spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can safely say that God's answer to the why includes a plan to cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him. He causes everything to work after the counsel of his own will. He is on his throne. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Nothing happens apart from almighty God's sovereign plan and purposes. And so when we are tempted to ask why, Grab hold of a big view of your God. Bring your burden as Habakkuk does to the Lord. Trust him and watch his plan unfold according to his will and his timing. We would be remiss if we fail to remember that our Lord Jesus while hanging on Calvary's cross, having been bruised and beaten to a pulp, cried out with the same question, why? Why? In context, Christ cried out, my God. This is the first time we hear him referring to God as God instead of Father. My God, there's a sense of distance that you feel. Why? Why have you forsaken me? If anyone had the right to ask such a question, it was the Lord Jesus himself. He had done nothing wrong. He had lived a perfect life. He obeyed the Father perfectly at every single turn, and his perfect obedience led him to Calvary's cross. And we know the answer to our Lord's question. Our Lord hung on a cross in our place. He died the death we deserved to die. He took upon himself at the cross our sin and he received our punishment so that we might through faith in him be saved. Through his blood, we are redeemed. The debt we owe has been paid in full. There is no price to be paid anymore and we are washed clean in the blood of the lamb our sin is atoned for and we are brought into relationship with the triune god of the universe that is why that is why for our good and the glory of god the problem of evil is addressed by god himself as he sends his beloved son into this fallen world to secure the salvation of our souls. We may ask, why did God raise up a wicked people who would nail his innocent son to a cross of wood? And our answer to why is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him 
would not perish, but would have eternal life. We must take our Y-shaped hearts to the foot of the cross and take time to recall who our God is and what He has done for us. We need to know that we are free to approach our Lord with our why questions. Habakkuk serves as an excellent example of openness and honesty before the Lord. Friends, don't be afraid to bring your why questions to the Lord. He invites you to do so. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Cast all your cares upon the Lord. Why? Because he cares. Uh, Who does he care? He cares for you. So therefore, cast all of your cares. Bring your why questions and throw them at the feet of the Lord. And know he loves you. He cares for you. He's concerned. He's listening. He does not turn his back on you. We have this great high priest. And he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted in all things as we, but he was without sin. And so we are given command, therefore, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our times of need. And once we have brought our why questions to the Lord, once we have reflected upon the truth of of who our God is, once we have unloaded our burdens, and if God's answer is not what we were hoping for, let us trust the just shall live by faith. Let us wait and let us be open to the ways we might need to be reproved. By Almighty God. I want to fast forward, if you would, to a future day. I want you to imagine living during the great and terrible day of the Lord, the great seven year tribulation. The wrath of Almighty God is being poured out upon the world scene, and those refusing to receive the mark of the beast are being hunted down and killed. Imagine being a Jew and crying out to Yahweh, why? Why? What's going on? And imagine in due time your eyes being opened as you read through God's word and you realize what is happening. You you realize the truth. Imagine reading through Habakkuk and seeing how God sovereignly raised up the Babylonians to accomplish good amongst his people. And realizing as you read through Habakkuk that like Habakkuk, you need to trust in a God with what his plan is regarding the affairs of the world. And then imagine coming to the book of Revelation and reading about mystery Babylon in Revelation chapter 17 and realizing that every single aspect of history is filtered through the sovereignty of Almighty God. It always has been, it always is, and it always will be. And know that at the end of the day, God will judge in righteousness. He, he always has, always will accomplish his purposes. And we see this as we put Habakkuk's book in historical perspective and realize afresh that all things work together for good. This has always been true, continues to be true, and will always be true. So remember who your God is. Bring your Y-shaped heart to the Lord Trust in him with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and know he will direct your steps and wait upon the Lord for his plan to unfold, whatever that plan might be. Earlier, and we're coming to the end here, earlier I referenced some of my own why questions as they related to my dad. You may not have picked up on that. But I've had my own why questions. Why did dad have to have a severe stroke some two years ago? And then why, near the end of November of last year, did dad have to fall 
and break his hip. But there was another why question that I wrestled with years before. Why doesn't God save my dad? I had wept wept bitterly for the salvation of my dad's soul. But somewhere along the way, my prayers decreased in intensity and frequency. I still prayed, but reluctantly surrendered the matter of my dad's salvation to the Lord. I chose to trust the Lord, affirming God's right to send dad to hell. Should he die rejecting Christ, failing to repent of sin and seeking salvation through Christ alone? Two years ago, dad had a major stroke. That was not part of my plan for my dad. In many ways, dad's stroke was difficult. It was heartbreaking. But there was a silver lining Dad became open to my ministry to him. He became open to the God that I worship. He allowed me for the first time to read God's word to him and to pray for him. He even on one occasion allowed me to bring him to our men's Bible study here at Cornerstone. Afterward, dad commented that Milton's study was the deepest study he had ever attended. Looking back, I believe God was working. He was answering a 31-year prayer, but not in the way that I could have imagined. And then near the end of November of last year, he fell and, and he broke his hip, landing him on the operating table and in a hospital room. The Lord knew that in that room, Near dad's bedside, I would have a heart-to-heart with dad, resulting in dad praying for the Lord to forgive him and to save his soul. Fifteen days later, as I finished my prayer for dad at his bedside with amen, within a second, the monitor flatlined. And dad entered into the presence of the Lord, into the arms of the good shepherd. Looking back, I can see how God allowed dad to have a stroke and then later to break his hip in answer to a 31-year prayer for his salvation. We don't always have the answers to our questions we often find ourselves asking, why? It is during those times that we need to step back, grab hold of a big view of who our God is, and then press in with our burdens, trust in Him, and wait for His plan to unfold. A verse that comes to my mind is the verse that says, He makes all things beautiful in his time. Do you believe that? Do you trust in him? Do you know that at the end of the day, he makes all things beautiful in his time, in his time? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, our biggest struggle is trust. Our biggest struggle is faith. And mixed in with our sin, Lord, we are a very needy people. I pray, Lord, that as we have looked at Habakkuk chapter 1, that you might have helped us to gain some ground in our faith. That, Lord, that we realize that even if the questions we have aren't answered the way we want them to be, that, Lord, we can trust in you. And that, Lord, you welcome us to bring our burdens to you. Our Y-shaped hearts are no match for you. You can handle the whys in our life. 
Give us boldness, Lord. Give us courage. Give us confidence. Give us faith, Lord, to press into you, O God, the triune God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us, Lord, lay hold of you. Let us see you through the eyes of faith and let us rejoice in you, trust in you, believe in you, walk by faith and not by sight. Let us trust in your promises that you have given to us, Lord, and let us persevere. Even as Habakkuk, he was praying. He had prayed for a long time. He continued to pray and he didn't turn his back on you, Lord, and and protect us, Lord, from, from turning our own backs on you when when life is hard and, and when life hurts and when we have our why questions, let us not become hardened, but let us draw nigh to you, God. And let us help others to draw nigh to you as well. Let us encourage one another. Let us build each other up, Lord. Let us show Christ to one another. And let us look ahead to that future day, Lord, when the whole earth, as it says in chapter 2 of Habakkuk, the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And you sit on your throne, you are in your temple, you reign and you rule. And give us hope, give us faith. We thank you, Jesus, for bleeding your blood for us, dying, being laid to rest, raised up, ascended. Seated at the right hand of the Father. And you will come again. And to you alone belongs all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.